Hello, I'm Michael. Hello, I'm Linda. And we are both history buffs fascinated with the story of art. Linda is Professor of the History of Art at University College Dublin, and I'm a graduate of the Pontifical Institute of Christian Archaeology in Rome. So the two of us have undertaken to meet every fortnight and to talk about the journey which travellers took between the 17th and the 19th centuries through the north of Europe, going down through France, on their way to their goal, which was the great city, the eternal city of Rome. Yes, and Michael, as we said in our last instalment, our last episode, we were taking time to actually step into the hidden gem, which is Ravenna. And in terms of our grand tourists, it was something that uh, some certainly would have made a journey from Venice south and they would have headed to, you know, hearsay. They would have heard of this early Christian city, which um, is very often bypassed today by the modern tourist. That's true. It's a hidden gem and it is, as you say, often bypassed by in the past, maybe, but also by modern tourists. And it's such a shame. I simply can't understand why. Because Ravenna is one of the citadels of art, unparalleled anywhere else in the Roman world. Indeed, in the early 5th century, when northern tribes and barbarians were sweeping down from the northeast, Ravenna briefly became the seat of the Roman emperor. It was therefore the capital of the empire in the west from 402 until the empire finally collapsed in the west with the deposition of the last Roman emperor, the 12-year-old boy Augustus Romulus. So, my love affair with Ravenna... Uh, started about 30 years ago when I was on an archaeological field trip with the Pontifical uh, Institute of Christianity and it really has stayed burned into my memory. So much so that I went back there about three years ago just before the pandemic and I spent six days there. I found a beautiful hotel and I billeted myself there and each morning fortified by a lovely breakfast I ventured out like the grand tourists of old and visited the beauties of this great city. Um, Ravenna, it's quite small, isn't that right, Michael? Um, it has very, very fine, a fine set of early Christian monuments. It has the most continuous brick wall of a walled city, I think, anywhere. So it's 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 kind of unique in that regard as a walled town, one of the great walled towns of Europe from 405 with its gates. And through those gates, you would enter from the coast, from the sea and in right into the heart of this uh, small but perfectly formed jewel of a city. And millennia, uh, millennia of silting, you know, silting up, it, it sort of fell out of view and in fact it was connected to the sea by the canal the Candiano and that was something that perhaps even a Gran Turisti may have come down the lagoon from Venice and uh, ventured to Ravenna via this canal. The Grand Tours travel southwards about 140 kilometres to reach Ravenna. Uh, generally, they would have left Venice, obviously, and come down south. And as you say, word of mouth, probably a little bit like today, how we hear about these things. And what a sight beheld their eyes. There's simply no other city in the world like Ravenna. There was a foundation there from at least the 5th century BC, and the Romans began to explore the area in the 3rd century BC. But Ravenna did not become part of the Roman Republic until 89 BC, and about 60 years later, Augustus, the first Roman emperor, built a harbour to house the navy in the port of Classis, close to Ravenna. 
So there were a lot of sailors around from that time onwards who, along with Roman soldiers, guarded the city. And that's probably why the Emperor Honorius settled in Ravenna at the beginning of the 5th century. Because he felt that Rome was no longer safe and he believed that the city of Ravenna was more secure as a fortified city, as you've mentioned, which could also repel sea attacks. In other words, pirates and people coming to attack him. He made a serious miscalculation, I think, because in 409, seven years after the emperor took up residence, Alaric, king of the Visigoths, descended on Rome and sacked it. And so after the fall of Rome in the west in 476 AD, Ravenna became the seat of the Ostrogoth kings until the Byzantines captured it in 540. And to add, um, we're, we're kind of thinking geographically, if you imagine the Adriatic, Ravenna is on the completely the other side of Italy, of the peninsula from Rome. And in fact, it linked, therefore, it was quite a short journey by sea to Apollonia to Dirhassium, which are in the modern day um, country of Albania. Um, and from there they would pick up the Via Ignatia, which was literally a straight route, route or roadway to Constantinople. So it was a way of linking Rome via, you know, going across the Apennines to this new, maybe more vibrant and the more pulsating city in uh, the east, which was Constantinople. And that exactly ties into how the Byzantines held Ravenna until 751, when the Lombards, that's the people from the area of, let's say, present-day Milan, took over. So, as you can guess, there's a whole mix of styles when we look at the city. So, after that potted history of millennia in two minutes, it's worth looking at the monuments, eight of which are on the UNESCO Catalogue of World Monuments of Artistic Merit. Now, we've had rather a lot of Roman history, so perhaps it would be wiser not to dwell too long in the history of the Orthodox and Aryan Christians in the city. But we have to know something about it because that's a key to understanding the monuments. In the early 4th century, a presbyter of Alexandria in Egypt, a man called Arius, claimed that Jesus was human, but simply infused with divinity by God. So in Arius's view, Jesus was entirely human. Now, that contrasted with the orthodox view, and by that I mean the generally accepted view that Jesus was both human and divine. The Emperor Constantine, who had legalized Christianity after two and a half centuries of persecution, called a meeting of the bishops at an ecumenical council at Nicaea in modern-day Turkey, around 325 and there the bishops hammered out a creed or a text outlining the basic Christian teaching that Jesus was both human and divine. So it's really important to understand that uh, in order to comprehend what the buildings stand for. The followers of Arius never really disappeared. They continue to exist and even to this day in Coptic Egypt. And so that's why when we visit Ravenna, we still find two great baptistries, that of the Orthodox and that of the Arians. And if you step into them today, they seem virtually the same. But try telling that to the Christians around one and a half thousand years ago. Yes, and in fact, in, in both cases, 
the main kind of activity or the main event in these uh, wonderfully domed buildings uh, high up on the, the kind of pinnacle of the dome would be uh, is the baptism of Christ. And he's depicted as kind of stepping into the Jordan and the witnessing of that event. The Jordanus River is it tends to be the Jordan's River personified and very often um, the figure of John the Baptist is there uh, creating and carrying out the, the the, the, the rite of baptism. Also, though, another extraordinarily dueled or bejeweled monument. And again, these are quite small scale. So the baptistries were small with a large pool in the centre uh, for the kind of Im- full immersion of, of the Christian, you know, to become part of this new Christian faith. A tomb for Galaplacidia is another late antique Roman building that we should think about around 425. And she was actually the daughter of the next emperor, Theodosius and Gala, and essentially Aelia Galaplacidia. She's the likely patron of this mausoleum. Uh, it was Again, small scale, but cruciform and an oratory. So a place to reflect, to go and pray. And it's also adjoined close to uh, the narthex of the Church of Santa Croce uh, in Ravenna. As I say, cruciform cross-shaped in terms of its floor plan and then raised up high above. There's a central dome which sits on these rather lovely triangular features called pendentives, which is something that's very clearly uh, a new feature in terms of architecture, something to to move from the kind of form of a square to the sphere of a dome. So how you do that in terms of building construction, it's probably something as as Michael has mentioned, the Lombardic, uh, the Lombards were particularly good at m- working with brick, and this is something that you you can see get, catch sight of a lot of in Ravenna. But there were also barrel vaults uh, in this small cruciform oratory over these four little transepts. So. Each of these uh, were decorated in glass mosaic and that in itself, and I think Michael and I referred to this a little ways back, especially when we thought about Murano in Venice, all this kind of the, the special sand in the lagoon, the silica, the high content of silica gave way to forming, in this case, long strips of coloured glass. Glass mosaic was a revolution uh, at this time. The the long strips could be cut into cubes, and these are called tessera, like a four-sided object. Each one in these colours then, you know, could be created, you know, were pushed into the patterns, the figures. So in the case of Galaplotidia, it's probably best known as the figure of the Good Shepherd. It's a wonderful pastoral scene with the, the figure of a young figure of Christ, early iconography in terms of early Christian period, seated, uh, surrounded by his flock, these lovely sort of, you know, lovely woolly looking sheep uh, seated on this rocky outcrop. So the depiction of a young man, the Creophorus, and then bearing on his shoulders the sheep and the sheep itself, obviously something that becomes very much part of the notion of the flock and associated with Christ, especially in these funerary contexts. Yes, exactly. And keep in mind that we're at the twilight of the classical world. So this is just the very end. And it's interesting for the grand tourists because if they had uh, a bear, you know, the tutor who would be telling them what they were seeing, because remember, most of these people, they didn't speak Italian. The majority of them had to kind of muddle through with a little Latin. Um, So they were hearing what this is about and they were probably trying to say this is the end of classical art. And that's why Ravenna is so tremendously important 
to the people of the 17th, 18th, 19th century. And then when they went back to the north of Europe, you'll see that they built, in fact, I was in London recently and just admiring some of these wonderful buildings, which are so clearly inspired by Rome. And when we go down to Rome in a few weeks' time, we'll see that and see how they brought up this. But I wonder, did they bring up building techniques? You know, somebody who had a really good a Lego mind, uh, you know, did they bring up this idea how to... Uh, how to build their uh, various monuments. But no visit, of course, would be complete without a journey uh, to see the wonderful mosaics in Santa Polinari, one of the principal churches. It is a Palatine church. It was a palace church or chapel, if you like. It was originally built in the first years of the 6th century by Theodoric the Great and embellished maybe about 30 years later or so by the Emperor Justinian and his wife, the Empress Theodora, who incidentally was an acrobat before she met her future husband, so she did well. Um, that was in the mid-6th century. And when you look at the, this uh, wonderful church, as you enter the... You, you must go in by the side door, I think, on the right-hand side. You can't go in the main door. But when you walk in, you're just greeted with this enormous big rectangular hall... And on either side, there's a clerestory of windows going down, both lighting the church. So it's quite bright. On the left-hand side, you have a number of women uh, who are interpreted as virgins, as martyrs, and they're proceeding towards the altar. And on the right-hand side, you've got the same amount of men. And this is, if you like, a mirroring of an imperial procession, probably, which would have taken place because this was a court chapel. And when the emperor and his wife, when Justinian and Theodora attended church, you know, they went with the whole court. They didn't just go in on their own. And this was to impress people. And we've said before, but I think, Linda, it's worth repeating, that for people who are coming into these buildings, um, well, at that time, the 6th century, but for centuries afterwards, they lived in simple homes, they lived in wooden houses, and when they see something like this, they're just knocked off their socks, really. So one of the things that I always enjoy looking at is um, at the early one of the earliest depictions of the Magi visiting the newly born Christ, and that's at the end of the procession of the women on the top left-hand corner. And you've got the, the men in their lovely leotards and their Phrygian caps, and they're leaning towards. So there's still movement, and we're just coming to the end when the medieval period of stagnation is taking over. Yes, and um, to add to that, you mentioned um, this is um, a Palatine chapel. There's also a rather wonderful image of the palace and that's something that is referenced and alluded to it looks like a very one of these great late antique uh, structures and very much part of yeah the late uh, the late antique period with and it's adorned with wonderful drapery and other details and that's that's you see that on uh, you know opposite this wonderful scene of the magi and equally you mentioned michael justinian and theodora what's so interesting about Ravenna is in actual fact they never actually made it there and we know so much about them Procopius was the great source uh, the historian who's written about both of them in his extraordinary book called The Secret History and also we know well about the general Belisarius who was you know in many respects he came 
to uh, this this whole Aryan schism, if you like, came to a head with the presence of the Goths in this uh, in the city. And yes, the, Byz- the Byzantine emperor sent a- an army in via, they come in via Sicily, they come up through Italy uh, to, yeah, to assuage and to um, drive back this Gothic presence in, or the presence of the Goths in Italy. And out of this Justinian will, there will be, a church will be built in the 530. So 537, also in Ravenna, extraordinarily, uh, the Church of San Vitale, which is very much, it's a Roman and Byzantine building, in fact. It's all about the dome, everything to do with, you know, it's, it's, it's groupings of these small chapels. And in actual fact, it's in se- itself is based on an earlier example from of San Sergius and Bacchus, in in Constantinople. So what we're beginning to see is this extraordinary kind of pro- cross-pollination of builders and design and style and then modelling and decorating it in this Byzantine medium using the wall mosaic. So it's an absolutely extraordinary structure. And yes, uh, as we say, no visit to this part of Italy. You really have to go and witness San Vitale uh, itself. But what's so interesting also is this document inside. There are two, and they face each other, and they're just to the side of the main sanctuary. And there's one mosaic on the right side, which depicts the Emperor Justinian, and right across from him is uh, the wonderful Theodora. And she, they're both at the moment of first instance. It's, it's the introduction into the church. Again, it's this whole emphasis on procession. And um, in the case of Justinian, he he is very clearly uh, in imperial dress. Uh, he has a halo, which maybe suggests that he's divine at this stage. Um, so, you know, in, in many respects, it's a kind of portrait. Um, is it a portrait after the fact? That's always, uh, you know, something that's discussed. There's a whole row of Palatinate guards, deacons, Belisarius general, and indeed Vitalis and um, the uh, Maxim, Maximian the bishop. So these are all present. They're also holding different attributes, um, a great uh, patera, a jewel-encrusted codex. And what this reflects too is that these um, the early Christians will eschew the scroll for the codex, for the book. This is the printed uh, word, uh, the, the sort of hand, handmade um, codex or, or or word of God, if you like, in terms of the, the the Bible. So they're they're carrying this in the procession, and across uh, Theodora is very solemn, very formal, and it's a group of courtly women depicted in this in this instance, again robed in the wonderful Tyranian purple, and in this case she has the three magi embroidered into her hem. Um, she's holding the Eucharistic vessel for wine, and her panel that one differs from Justinian. It's much more lavish. It's much more complex. Uh, there's a small little fountain for the cleansing of the, the, the sort of physical presence before you entered through the curtains into uh, the into the church itself. So it's a kind of a, a space and spatial uh, reflection of a procession that's happening. I, th- I think that's true. Yes, what you what you describe also. But one thing I'd add is that Ravenna is a very doable city. I mean, I said that I spent six days there, but that's only because I'm, you know, fascinated by mosaics and early Christian art and iconography, etc. But if you were to fly, let's say, or travel there 
I don't know what the great tourists did, how long they would have spent, maybe a day or two. But certainly it's well worth it because it's it's very much more relaxed than Venice. It's a beautiful city. You've got about seven, eight monuments that you can go and see very much at your leisure. But I think you're right. San Vitale is the one that knocks your socks off because there can't be more than an inch which isn't covered with fabulous glass and stone polychrome mosaic. But, Linda, at this stage, I think we've run out of time. Uh, It's probably time for coffee. And um, we should say ciao, arrivederci, until we come back and regroup when we go. Where are we going next? Well, I think if we're thinking of our great grand turisti, our milordi, um, they would have left here. um, They're facing the Apennines. They have to go over those into the area of Bologna. That was that tended to be a pause. I think we're going to gallop on. We're going to take our... Yeah, because otherwise we'll never get to Rome. Yeah, we're going to take our post chaise. Well, why don't we do it like this, that if we jumped over Bologna, we could go on to San Gimignano, which is beautiful, uh, Siena, stunning, pop down to Rome, spend a couple of days or podcasts there. Are you forgetting Firenze? No, I'm not forgetting Firenze. I'd never do that. I'd love Florence. Well, we could do Florence on the way back or... Or how about, sorry, if I could... Here we are now, the two of us being cheeky. I would imagine these Grand Touristi, Florence was the kind of... was the After Venice was the next great stop. So I think we should pause there um, and make day trips to Siena. Why don't we do that? And San Gimignano. And maybe let's jump to San Gimignano as fast as we can. So, arrivederci and until the very next time. Ciao. <laughs>